0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. The title of our message this morning is The Writings on the Wall. Daniel chapter 5. The Writings on the Wall. As you're turning, I'll pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Go before us, Father, and open up the scriptures to us. Speak comfort, correction, encouragement whatever it is lord we need to hear i just pray that you would speak it to our hearts as we thank you for this time and we lift it up to you in jesus name amen so we've been going through the book of daniel um we've left nebuchadnezzar he is now no longer um alive he had a 43 year reign and so we're moving on um Through a series of individuals, his sons, that would take the reign uh, for different stints and periods of time, some of them evil and some of them more evil, even one of them uh, diminished capacity mentally and he was just coaxed into, uh, tricked really into taking the throne through uh, some unsuspecting people that wanted to take advantage of him being able to reign and so that guy ends up being killed um, just ruthlessly and so just all kinds of drama Belshazzar his grandson is a co-heir co-regent with his father Nebididus or I don't even know what his name is but um, the historical records show all of that stuff and it's interesting because Belshazzar was accused of never being able to be the last king in uh, the nation of, of um, Babylon's history and it would be recently that they found um, his name, and of course the Bible is once again vindicated as being accurate, and historically and otherwise, but uh, just interesting dynamics of what's taking place. So Belshazzar is a co-regent with his father, and he's the one that's ruling and reigning here in chapter 5, and so let's take a picture, uh, a look at the picture that God paints for us in the last year of Babylon's history. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And so, just a big party. Simultaneously, while he's throwing this party of a thousand people, the, the uh, town of Babylon is being surrounded and it's going to be sieged. And he's going to be taken over. And so, while he's in this stupor of alcohol, um, he, it will be the last day of his life, if you will. Verse 2, while he tasted the wine, that means while he was under the influence of the wine, while the wine was doing what it does, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar, it's truly his, his grandfather, there is no word in the Hebrew for father, so it says father, but it's his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. It's one thing to be ruthless, it's one thing to disobey, it's one thing to have no set of morals and values, but it's an entirely other thing when you come against God to do those things. When you're wicked, that's one thing. When you're wicked against God and almost taunting him, that's a different level of sin. The Bible calls it high-handed sin. And this is exactly what's going on. And I find it interesting that with his hand... He is going to defy God and God is going to send his hand into his life to write a message on the wall. And I can't find that, um, you know, it's not a dink. With his hand, he's going to take the vessels that were supposed to be sanctified for the temple of God to be used to honor and glorify God. And he's going to take those vessels and he's going to mock God by drinking wine and having this party and saying, look, I rule God. I can take from God whatever I want. So that's scary ground to be on. Verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. I find it interesting when I talk to people as it relates to alcohol, what their stance is on it. And I mean, the Bible has plenty to say about alcohol. History has plenty to say about alcohol, drugs, anything that would bring us under its influence. And of those things, we need to be careful. But as it relates specifically to our theology, be careful not to add to God's word or take away from God's word. I think what you know you begin to grow in in the convictions that God gives you go ahead and walk in obedience to those very things but be careful to place your convictions upon others the bible declares of wine or alcohol that wine is a mocker and we see it all over the world there is no greater damage from any drug than alcohol in the world but the bible doesn't prohibit alcohol the Bible in no uncertain terms says that there is you can never drink alcohol it just says to be careful be careful that you don't overindulge and if you have a weakness towards it then be careful with that and so again it's just mentioning what's taking place there's a party there's a thousand people that are invited there's wine that's flowing there's people that are under the influence of that wine that leads to something that goes into something that is called sacrilege a mockery of God by taking the vessels that were dedicated to God. Goes on in verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. So this is where we get the saying, I'll make you weak at the knees. Weak at the knees. His knees are knocking. His countenance changes. Belshazzar sobers up as he sees the hand come through just somewhere in the air here and begins to write a message on the wall. Verse 7, Then the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? He's not reigning by himself, he's reigning with his father and so it's a co-regent, co-reigning that they're doing and so he's giving the third of the kingdom. It would be split between him, his father and whoever can interpret this writing on the wall now the words they can see and they know what the definition of the words are but what it means exactly they cannot tell verse where are we at eight now all the king's wise men came but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. And so the queen here is either Nebuchadnezzar's wife, Nebuchadnezzar has died, it's either his wife or it's his daughter. So it'll either be the grandmother or mom of Belshazzar. So she comes and she lets him know. She knows the history of King Nebuchadnezzar. She knows what's taking place, as does Belshazzar. But Belshazzar isn't letting that knowledge affect how he lives. He's living independent of what he knows he should be doing. So the queen, because of the words, uh, verse 10, came, gave him that. Verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom... In whom is the Spirit of the Holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining en- enigmas were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. You see within the queen an incredible respect given to Daniel. She names him Daniel. She makes a note that her husband or father, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, named him Belteshazzar, but she names him twice Daniel. And she refers to him to call him as Daniel. She knows the history of what took place with Nebuchadnezzar, And she's letting King Belshazzar know that you can call for this guy. God has used him before. Something that I personally find interesting in this chapter as I read through the book of Daniel is it's been about 23 years since Daniel was used in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So history, it's 23 years later. Now Belshazzar is on the throne and this is taking place. And what that speaks to me personally is and for all of us as people who want to be used by God, God is doing a work in this world. And are we intent on being used by God when he wants to use us? In the life of Daniel, it's as though Daniel wasn't needed for a season. And it, in my mind, I just see him, if you will, placed on the shelf ministry-wise. And that's okay because it's about God and his kingdom. It's about when God wants to use whoever it is he wants to use. And Daniel is available for God when God wants to use him. And so now here comes a time where God is going to say, okay, Daniel, I need you to do this. And Daniel makes himself available and is faithful with what God is calling him to. It goes on in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah, I have heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas, Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so I don't know what it is about uh, this reward. They want to make him look like Barney with a gold chain around his neck or uh, some some modern-day wrapper or something. But nonetheless, that's the reward. Notice Daniel's response. Then Daniel answered, verse 17, and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another, yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel recognizes that he's been gifted by God to serve God, and it's not what he can get for it or what he can get out of it. He simply wants to be faithful to what God has called him. If you were to read Daniel's chapters 1, 2, 3, 4 up to this point, you would see that Daniel had an incredible respect for Nebuchadnezzar, that he doesn't have for Belshazzar his grandson. And you can see it in how he speaks. He speaks respectfully, but he there's no soft what he's going to tell him. There's no holding punches. With Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if he had discerned that God was going to bring Nebuchadnezzar to the faith and Nebuchadnezzar would ultimately surrender his heart to God or I don't know exactly what it is or or how Daniel was able to discern that but you see a very different relationship with Daniel and Belshazzar and Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's just interesting dynamic of an observation as I was reading through. Verse 16 18, I can't see. O King, the Most High, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished, he executed. Whomever whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, And his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like beasts and his dwelling was with wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. And he summarizes chapter four for us right here in this little uh, part of this verse till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it over it whomever he chooses. And so what Daniel does for Belshazzar is he gives him a history lesson. And he knows that Belshazzar knew this about his grandfather, but it didn't have an effect on his life. He knew that his grandfather was mad for seven years, dwelt in in the front of the palace, if you will, on the grounds, eating grass like an ox until his senses came back to him. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged God as the God of heaven, but he received him personally into his life. And so again, Belshazzar knew all of this, but it didn't affect his life. And so knowledge is not enough. It's our response to knowledge and what we know that needs to take place. Verse 22, but you, his son, Belshazzar, Have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. So you've been placed on earth to glorify the Lord. The very God that holds your breath in his hands, you've not acknowledged, you've not glorified. There's a scripture in Acts chapter 17 where Paul is speaking in the Areopagus. And he says that God has predetermined and and appointed where we would live and when we would live. And then he says of the prophets, of that group that he's speaking to, even your own prophets have said, the God in which we have our moving and our being and we exist. That's the God of heaven, the God of creation. He is the reason why we live. He is the one that has given us life. And we should acknowledge that with our lives. And so right here, the very God that holds your breath, Belshazzar, you've not even acknowledged. And instead, you're worshiping these gods made with man's hands gold, silver, wood, all of these material gods that you're looking to. Verse 24. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel you farson. This is the interpretation of each word, many. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting, Perez which is the singular of the plural Upharsin Perez your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom that very night Belshazzar king of the Chaldeans was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And so the writing on the wall was many, many tekel eupharsin. I had a note here. So many, many tekel eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. It should be observed that each word stands for a short sentence. Meg Many signifies numeration, tekel signifies weighing, and peres division. And so, though. all these wise guys of Babylon could read those words and they knew the meaning of the words. They didn't know that basically your number's up, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found lacking. There's something that's not there. And so because of that, your kingdom will be taken from you. God had Belshazzar's number and it fell short. God weighed Belshazzar and he came up light. God would therefore divide Belshazzar's kingdom to the Medes, and the Persians. As I was reading through this and just studying this week, I was thinking of, you know, the finger of God, the writings on the wall. That, that saying has come to mean the writing on the wall. Like, man, that's clear to see. There's writing on the wall. We can see something is going to yet in the future happen in your life because we can see the writings on the wall and it usually doesn't mean something that's good, right? And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about just the times in the scriptures that God's finger actually wrote. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and he places them on two tablets of stone. Moses comes back down the mountain as he spends time with God and what does he see? The nation of Israel dancing around a fire and worshiping this calf of gold, right? We just put the rings and the jewelry in the fire and calf popped out. Aaron, his brother, tells him when he gets back down the hill and Moses just in a fury throws the stones down. Then he goes back up to meet with God and he comes back down with the tablets. And in Exodus chapter 31 verse 18, it says that were written with the finger of God. The very law given to Moses, written with the finger of God. And I think of that law and I think of what that law does. Not a bad law, is it? Not bad that, you know, we have those, those commandments within the scriptures. I shall not do all of these things and we need to do these other things. Good stuff, but impossible for us to maintain, impossible for us to keep. As I go over into the New Testament in John chapter eight, Jesus is confronted with a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And these religious leaders trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick him. They take this woman and they throw, him, throw her at Jesus' feet. And they said, Jesus, she was caught in adultery in the very act. The law says that she should be stoned, but, but what do you say? And the Bible declares that Jesus bows down and he just kneels down and with his finger he begins to write in the dirt. The Bible doesn't tell us what he writes. The Bible never tells us the exact words that he's writing. But it goes on to say in that account that almost with his back turned to the scene and to everything that's going on as he's writing, the Bible says, then one by one from the oldest to the youngest, they began to drop their rocks and they leave. They depart. And then Jesus looks up and he sees the woman and now she's standing alone. And he says, woman, where are those who accused you? Your accusers, where where are they at? And she says, there's no one left, Lord. And Jesus says, neither then do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so as I was thinking about just this finger of God, I was thinking for myself, like, Lord, if you wrote with your finger, Something uh, towards me, something against me. What, what, What did you write? And I was just thinking of these accounts. And I was thinking how awesome God is to do what he's done. There's a scripture in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. It would be Friday, one of the worst days in my life. I'm pretty exaggerative, uh, like hyperbole, like really one of the worst days of your life? Yes, it was literally one of the worst days in my life. So I'm coming out of the gym all sweaty and just gunky, and it was one of those days where I was like, man, I got so much time, I really, okay, I, I guess I'll go to the gym today. So I'm at the gym, workout, sweating, just coming out, walking out, and I get a phone call, oh, a phone call, and my heart sinks oh no, oh oh, oh, no, and I I answer the phone. And she says, so are you on your way? And I say, oh, was that today? Oh my gosh, Um, well no, I'm not on my way, but yeah, that was today. It was a wedding on Friday that I was supposed to, well, I was supposed to conduct that wedding and I'm just like, nothing to do at the gym, wondering, hey, life's good. Life's not good. Wow. Okay, um, well, what time, oh my gosh, okay, well, what time does the wedding start? And she says, well, it was supposed to start at four, and I say, well, what time is it? Because I have no idea. What time is it? Because I'm free, right? I got nothing to do. And she says, well, it's about 425 right now. How far away are you? And I'm thinking an hour and a half by the time I go home and shower and get dressed and oh my gosh, okay. Um, she goes, well, and I'm talking to the friend of the bride. I'm not actually talking to the bride-to-be, right? And so, oh my gosh, bad day, bad day. No, no, no. I've never done this. I've never not been where I'm supposed to be as a pastor. It's in my calendar. It's on the schedule. I know I was supposed to be there, but I didn't look at my calendar all week. Oh my gosh, it's today. Oh, what do I do? She says, "Well, I did ask, hey, do you guys have a backup plan? And she said, well, there's a pastor here and they've talked to him and he said he can fill in. And so I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go home home and you just call me call me and I'm gonna act like I'm gonna head over there and you just let me know and so I do get a call and she says Johnny don't worry about it it's taken care of in fact they've just done the ceremony it was great he did a bang-up job he really did a good job he filled in but boy oh boy did I feel horrible Can you imagine? No, you can't. I can because it happened to me. But to be where you're not supposed to, oh, wow, I was supposed to be there and I wasn't. As I was thinking of the handwriting against me, as I was thinking of what God can do uh, against me in my humanity, in my weakness, in my failure, I recognize that God covers me I recognize that God is able to do above and beyond to be able to provide for that couple. Uh, To give you the full story, they were already married. They had gotten married, but they wanted a ceremony for the family. And so they had gotten a hold of me about a month ago, and it was a last-minute kind of thing. But nonetheless, I was scheduled to be there, and I didn't show up. But this guy showed up. Thank you, Lord. And so as I was thinking about this writing on the wall and the writing against us and what the enemy wants to do and what our own weaknesses is, 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 is unable to do, I was thinking, God, you're so good to cover. You're so good to not have handwriting against us. The Bible says in Romans Chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And though the enemy wants to take me to a place where he wants to condemn me and have me walk in guilt and shame, God says, son, you did make a mistake, but I've covered you. I'm protecting even your stupidity, even your lameness, even sometimes when you just do these things that wow, we are all shaking our head and saying you really messed up but son, I have plans that are above and beyond. There's a scripture in Colossians. Go ahead and put that up for me, Richard. In Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15 The Bible says in you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. When the Bible declares that God has disarmed the principalities and powers, He punked the spiritual realm. When He died on the cross, carrying our shame, carrying our weaknesses, carrying our mistakes, and the handwriting that was against us, that was required of the law, he nailed it to the tree. And so guess what? We are going to mess up. We are going to make mistakes. We will walk in things that we should feel shame, but that comes from the enemy. And God says, I carried it for you. I took care of it. So be careful the voices that you listen to. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a calendar, and look at it once in a while to make sure that we keep our appointments and our dates and we can learn from those things that we call mistakes throughout life. But understand that there is no handwriting against you. There is nothing that a finger is going to come and point to you. God carried that for us. And the gospel and its implications is so broad you know, in, in worship, Monica was referring to something that do we know who we are in Christ? Do we know what we have in Christ? Do do we walk in that victory? Or are we so prideful that we're going to listen to the lies of the enemy as he condemns us and we're going to live in that instead of the victory and the better plan that God has? For our lives. And those are choices. We can walk in that defeatist attitude. We can walk in that condemnation. We can live in that shame. We can live in an embarrassed state. Or we can humbly just say, My God covers me. My God has better plans than I have. And I can just bask in the glory of God, thanking Him for His ability to cover my weakness. And my flesh and the the frailties of this living in a, you know, a human body and state. And I think that's what God would have us to do. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that we would be those who walk in the victory and in the freedom, the liberation of all that and what it means. In Matthew chapter 11... I shared this scripture last week, but Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am lowly in heart. Meek is the word. Gentle is what's in the New King James Version. And so those are choices, guys, that we get to make, and we can walk in the freedom that Christ offers and what the gospel teaches, or we can carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and the burdens that the enemy wants us to walk in and the condemnation and the shame and the guilt, or we can just recognize God in you, I have everything that I need. And even in my mistake, you're able to cover me. Thank you for that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the grace that you dispense, for the love that you have for us. Lord, we are weak and there are mistakes that we are gonna make. We're not gonna walk in the perfection of the law. The law is good, Lord. We agree with Romans that the law is good. But Lord, that standard is an impossible standard. And so we thank you that you have fulfilled it for us, that you have carried it. And in that, Lord, we are perfect. We are righteous. We are complete. And so, Father, I pray that we would see that positionally from the standpoint of eternity, from heaven's perspective, and, Lord, that that would create in our lives a freedom and a lightness as we give you thanks for what you accomplished on the cross,